What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Tom and Jay take a look at the following stories. Tom takes up the call for design thinking to be used in compliance. I screen, you screen, we all screen, just not for ice cream. The pandemic redefined the role of the general counsel. Did it do the same for the CCO? How to train managers in conflict of interest. The Bribery Act turns 10. What are the lookbacks over the last 10 years of its life? How about expanding your due diligence horizons for ESG? Jill Murphy on how to upgrade your compliance program in five steps. Gio Gallo on the question of, is your training sticky? Jessica Ellsworth on using data analytics to uncover anomalies. And internally communicating in corporations about cybersecurity issues. Podcast highlights and events all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 261 for the week ending by 16, 2021, the live in Portland edition. As Tom is recording in an undisclosed location in the live from Portland edition, he and Jay are back to look at the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught their eye. So, Jay, what say you? I say uh, I am almost moved in in my location. You can see all the family pictures on the walls. So let's go to your undisclosed location in Portland and start the week off for episode 261. Great. So um, as you know, Jay, we've been talking about our colleague Karsten Tam's series on design thinking in compliance, and he actually inspired me to uh, do a series this week. So uh, I took a look at design thinking in compliance, and the point I'd really like to emphasize is that this is really a user-friendly approach to designing, and I think it's uniquely suited and situated for the compliance professional because the first component of design thinking is to focus on the user experience. And that's really where it starts. And if you can include your employees in this process, I think it will make your compliance program not only stronger, but also uh, your employees will be more invested in it and uh, they will be more accepting of it. And the example I would point you to is our friend Lewis Sapperman, back when he was with uh, Dun at Bradstreet, getting them through their FCPA and Broglio. And um, in his uh, Twitter jams, which were his weekly connections with employees uh, via their internal, um, uh, not Twitter, uh, chat, uh, but it was a Twitter-like product internally they had. And employees, he asked them to, t- to think about what they wanted 
the name of their code of conduct to be. And uh, they came up with do the right thing. And that became the name of the code. And it really shows the power of it, uh, bringing your employees in to help uh, your compliance program in ways that you can. So uh, design thinking starts with that. What's the user experience? But it's not simply just designing around the user experience. It's testing as well. So take a look at my three uh, episodes. I lay out the how to do it and then uh, specifically what you can use it for in the compliance function. Jay, what do we have up next? Uh, next, we're checking in with Sylvia Andriasek from the FCPA blog. And uh, Tom's entitled her piece, I Scream, You Scream, We All Scream, But Not for Ice Cream. It's 5 p.m. and Sylvia is celebrating, not because the project was completed or her workday is over, but because she has been reviewed her 10,000th false positive in her company's sanctions list screening software. In doing so, she contributes to the business's smooth operations and carried out rigid compliance against master data, looking for sanctions persons and entities. Despite assumptions to the contrary, sanctions list screening is not mandatory except for regulatory entities like financial institutions. However, any business relationship with a sanctioned third party is prohibited from companies is prohibited, and companies risk fines in the case of violations. One challenge is in determining which sanctions lists are relevant for the company, bearing in mind that several sanctions lists have extraterritorial effect, such as the UK Consolidated List of Sanctions or the US OFAC list. To add complexity, some sanctions are more overtly political motivated than others, such as sanctions resulting from the US-China trade war. Technical difficulties also constitute a challenge despite advancements in screening software. For example, not all screening software identifies first, second, or even third level ownership structures. However, tracking down UVO, ultimate beneficial ownership, can be a legal requirement, especially in the financial sector. Another challenge is the large number of false positives generated by search algorithms, which commonly identify a hit as a record with at least 80% similarity in terms of name and addresses of the entity. Even in the case of minor configuration errors, companies might, be face, might face paying penalties if the screening software applied cannot identify identified sanctioned entities because of special characters not used in the English alphabet. For example, Apple unwittingly committed 47 sanction violations in 2019 as their screening tool failed to match different uppercase and lowercase characters. When it comes to privacy and screening employees, the U.S. and EU approaches are different again. Based on Articles 6 and 9 of the European Union's GDPR, screening of personal data against EU sanctions lists within the EU can be based on legal, legal obligation, and it's legitimate for reasons of public interest. In contrast, there's no generally applicable U.S. federal privacy law. However, comparing penalties paid by companies for sanction lists violations against data privacy breaches, it seems that being fined for data privacy violation would be far less damaging for the company's budget. Here's some numbers to quantify sanction fines. The largest fine paid for data privacy offenses in the U.S. was $575 million by Equifax. 
in the EU, Google paid $59 million to settle a GDPR-related offense. By comparison, Paris-based BNP Paribas paid $9 billion in 2015. Paris-based SocGen paid $1.3 billion in 2018. And French bank Credit Agricole paid $787 million. Despite the expense, time, and technical challenges, not to mention the fiscal penalties, it's far better to have 10,000 false positives to review than allow one real hit to get mixed. So here's to the next 10,000 false positives and a continuous effort it takes for compliance professionals to keep their organizations protected. Tom? We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. And the uh, article really deals with the role, how the role of the general counsel changed in the, um, or rather during the pandemic, but I thought it had a lot of applicability to compliance professionals, particularly CCOs. So I wanted to, to take it and use it as a starting point. And if you're a CCO or you're a compliance professional, think about uh, how you need to respond to some of these points. So number one, consider stakeholder expectations through an ESG lens. Now, I know we've talked about ESG a lot on this podcast, Jay, and I've written about it quite a bit. So uh, that should not be a surprise, but uh, you really need to think about share, excuse me, stakeholder expectations. Uh, two, uncovering disagreements is a key to board effectiveness. The uh, CCO must strive to have clarity in future crisis management scenarios because of uh, inherent reputational risk. And this is something I think it's going to be uh, really important. As uh, our, my colleague Jed Gartner has said, uh, we went from disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual, and you need to be ready for that uh, as a CCO. Um, uh, our friend uh, Amy Bernard Bond has been one of the leading exponents, Jay, as you know, of board diversity, uh, having helped pass legislation in California around this issue. And board refreshment is critical for board diversity. The days of, and I think Exxon learned this as well as anyone, simply a um, management uh, a slate with not really considering a wide variety of issues. For Exxon, it was ESG, but for others, uh, you're legally obligated to have a diverse board, gender diverse, racially diverse, or other types of diversity. And Amy's really uh, been on the forefront of this, but board refreshment is key to increased diversity. And uh, you have to get out there and uh, find appropriate candidates and, and get them on your board. Move beyond checkbox exercises for board evaluations as this is going to be, um, you know, a check the box is always a bad sign, Jay. If you've got a list and you're ticking it off, uh, that's a recipe for disaster. And then hybrid board meetings are here. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, do a hybrid board meeting uh, late last year and uh, uh, do some compliance training, and those are here to stay. So, um these are great points for the CCO or compliance professional who will be um, on our boards or rather um, um, presenting to a board. So uh, check out the article. Uh, it's by uh, Abbott Martin and Rosie Griffin. The redesi redefined role, uh, they take it from the GC perspective, but I took it from the CCO, and I know uh, you would find it uh, interesting as well. What do you have uh, next for us, Jay? 
Uh, next up, we chap- check in with Jeff Kaplan on his really uh, well-thought-out COI blog, which uh, stands for Conflicts of Interest. And uh, Jeff considers how to train managers in conflicts of interest. While COI risk can exist at any level of an or- organization, as a general matter, the risks increase often sharply as one proceeds up the org chart. Most obviously, this is because senior managers tend to have greater opportunities for COI fraught relationships and activities that, than do other employees. And two, COIs at higher levels of an organization are likely to be more harmful than our lower level, level conflicts. Given these and other factors, training managers and COIs can be an essential risk mitigant for many organizations. COI training for managers can and often should be part of a broader compliance and ethics training covering other significant areas of risk, as well as the roles of managers in the cooperation of the CNE program. Such training typically has two dimensions. First, an individual one to help managers avoid having COIs themselves and a larger organizational one to assist managers in preventing, detecting, addressing conflicts of interest by colleagues and third parties. More specifically, Jeff offers up nine different subjects one might train on. First, start the COI part of the training with an attention-getting hypothetical case, perhaps showing how harmful even well-meant COIs can be. Second, identify generally the types of COIs most relevant to the entity, as well as any special COI issues. Number three, describe the legal and business imperatives for a strong CNE effort in these areas. Four, discuss how employee perceptions of COIs by managers can undermine faith in the CNE program as a whole. Five, review applicable company policies and procedures regarding COIs perhaps using a hypothetical case to illustrate how they should work and what the risks of familiar might be. Number six, examine particular compliance challenges for the risk area, including the tendency of individuals to rationalize conflicts-driven decision-making and the frequent difficulty of challenging individuals on matters that have a sensitive personal dimension. Seven, explain what a manager's specific role is to ensure COI-related compliance. Eight, identify COI-related red flags to help meet responsibilities, and finally, connect COI issues to other risk areas of of significance, such as corruption, fraud, and insider trading confidential information. Tom? Jay, next up we have an article from uh, Neil Hodge over at uh, Compliance Week, and it's celebrating the 10th anniversary of the UK Bribery Act. So Neil uh, reviews the uh, the Bribery Act and uh, when it came in, uh, that was the gold standard when it came in, and really what it was designed to do. And uh, the prosecutions on that, I think, have been uh, there have been some that have fallen through, and I think uh, there's been some uh, consternation around uh, that issue and in whether or not individuals have been successfully prosecuted. But several commentators really pointed out the the whole point of the Bribery Act was not to prosecute companies. It was to set a standard really for compliance. And it's if you think that way about the FCPA, as um, Dick Casson often says, 
can't tell if there's less bribery, but he can tell there's more compliance. And several of the uh, uh, commentators that Neil spoke to and quoted in his article really echoed that point, that we have much more robust compliance in the United Kingdom because of the Bribery Act. And so uh, 10 years as opposed to 45 for the FCPA, uh, a little bit of a, a younger stepbrother. Nevertheless, it was a welcome addition in 2011. And I think it's an important law and really did set a gold standard for across the globe. And of course, we've seen several other laws since then. Sapondu in France, Germany's anti-corruption law, and of course, uh, Clean Companies Act in Brazil. So uh, I'd like to just uh, take a minute to celebrate the passage and now 10-year birthday of the Bribery Act. We saw massive prosecutions in terms of Rolls-Royce and Airbus, where I think the SFO really uh, uh, showed its chops in uh, bringing a massive, two, two massive anti-corruption actions. So I think we've had some, some good success. And um, Looks like uh, the Bribery Act is going to be with us uh, for quite some time, Jay. So next up, Tom, we've got an article from Alex Chance writing in Navix Global's Risk and Compliance Matters blog. And we're going to take a look at expanding your due diligence horizons for ESG. Risk and compliance professionals have long used enhanced due diligence as an essential tool for identifying critical regulatory risks. Much of the time, key drivers of EDD efforts are compliance concerns, such as those arising from FCPA or OFAC regimes. However, as the risk and compliance landscape continues to evolve, businesses' exposure to risks arising from sustainability, human rights, and social responsibility has grown. Both internal and external factors are prompting risk management programs to take a broader view of potential risks posed by third parties, suppliers, and other partners. In the past, sustainability and social responsibility as compliance matters often fell into the category of, quote, soft law, unquote, involving the voluntary adoption of various internationally recognized standards. This is changing. With the Global Magnitsky Act, the U.S. added certain human rights violations as subjects of its already robust sanctions program. ESG is another factor pushing towards more comprehensive risk assessments. ESG, which we know is in the evaluation of environmental, societal, and governance issues associated with an investment or counterparty, is built upon the notion that sustainability problems in the value chain present real material risks in addition to raising ethical concerns. Human-led EDD has long been the standard for vetting third parties or other businesses that present elevated FCPA or similar risks. Even every third party or supply chain risk management program should ensure that it has that its due diligence provider has the capacity to identify sustainability issues. A better way is to adopt a more focused risk approach, which begins by mapping out problem geographies, sectors, or transaction types, and then allocates resources appropriate to the degree of risk identified. Getting started with a simple geographic or sectoral risk map may be easier than you think. Just as TI-CPI score or the World Bank's worldwide governance indicators are often used by risk professionals as a jumping-off point for identifying location-specific risks, there are many valuable resources that can identify elevated sectoral or geographic risks for human rights and environmental issues. To be clear, 
clear, no EDD program should or can or should develop an ESG profile for a third-party supplier or customer in the same way that an investor analytic firm does so for publicly traded companies. But as ESG continues to evolve into a unifying framework for thinking about risk and long-term resilience, it makes sense to use EDD to address emerging regulatory risks and the concerns of new stakeholders. When so much information about prospective business partners or investments is derived from voluntary disclosures, EDD stands out as a source of substantive independently verified information and will only surely grow in importance if, as expected, more robust mandatory due diligence requirements start appearing in key jurisdiction. Tom? Jay, uh, as you know, I blog every day and uh, write quite a bit. You, over the years, have contributed uh, thought leadership pieces in a variety of uh, sources and places, uh, CCI, LinkedIn, uh, AMI's platform, and others. Um, we occasionally will have a, a, a must-read piece, uh, perhaps not always, but occasionally. But there's one guy that every piece he writes is a must-read piece. And that's Joe Murphy. And he really is, along with Dick Casson, I think, one of the top uh, compliance practitioners around, still practicing, uh, whether he's the, the godfather, the grandfather, or just the father, I'm not quite sure. But when Joe Murphy writes, you need to read it. And he's written one for us, like I said, in Compliance Week, entitled Five Steps to Elevate Your Average Compliance Program. Uh, and uh, so we've, uh, of course, cited to it in the show notes. And his five points are empower your CEO, help trickle down, move uh, your compliance program down through your business, eliminate retaliation, get an outside review of your compliance program, and incentivize compliance and ethics so that it's done right. Uh, many of these things, uh, at least four of them, you can do at little or no cost. Uh, you may have to spend some money if you bring in an outside uh, evaluator. But uh, these are things that uh, I love it when Joe just gives some pointers, uh, as he did in this piece. And once again, when Joe Murphy writes something about compliance, you need to read it and uh, digest it because he really is one of the top commentators. So uh, back over to you, Jay. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we go for the second of three now from Corporate Compliance Insights. We're going to hear from Gio Gallo, and he's going to tell us about, is your training sticking? It's the same at every job. An employee's first day or even week is dedicated not to doing the work they've been hired to do, but to learn how to do the work the way the company does it. New employees need to be trained on specific policies and procedures in place at a company. While this type of training is sometimes known as compliance training, and it may, be seem, it may seem tedious, it's critically important for every new employee. Compliance training serves two main purposes. First, it helps new employees understand the employer's rules and expectations, and specifically underlines acceptable behavior to ensure their physical and mental safety and that of their coworkers. And secondarily, it's an opportunity for employees to review all laws, rather employers, to review all laws, regulations, and safety protocols, thereby minimizing the risk of legal action. Compliance training is only effective if it's interesting, memorable, and relevant. Your compliance training should be designed to create a safe workplace for every one of your employees, 
make sure you use this opportunity to discuss all topics related to the workplace and worker safety, including the following. Conflict of interest. It's important to fully explain what a conflict is for your employees during training, explain the legal definition in its clearest terms possible, and provide real-world experience. In terms of issue reporting procedures, your employees need to know that your company listens to them. This will make them feel valued and their organization and within the organization. It's therefore vital to review the company procedure for reporting issues of violence, harassment, bullying, and other issues. Anti-harassment training. Today's anti-harassment training needs to be thorough. It should both define harassment and explain the appropriate strategies for responding to this kind of behavior. Employers should train their employees on how to intervene if they notice harassment in the workplace, as well as how to report it and to whom. Workplace safety and violence. Your compliance training should include information on all forms of safety. This includes protocols, as well as how to spot the signs of workplace violence and company policies for handling violence scenarios. Company policies. Make sure to spell out the company's stance on bullying, drug and alcohol use, and any other important points that fall under your employee code of conduct. Fully explain the obligations of both the employee and employer so that everyone understands how they're expected to behave. Diversity training. Diversity training should focus on the benefits of diverse workforce. Spend time teaching your employees how to listen to one another. Make sure they understand the value in having several different viewpoints. And finally, how do you achieve success with compliance training? Discussing the aforementioned topics is a great way to ensure your compliance training is thorough and informational. But how do you make sure it sticks with your trainees? Here are a few tips from GEO from keeping your training engaging and entertaining. First, use real-world scenarios and everyday language, no legalese, please, to help the employees understand. Keep the training engaging with a variety of learning tools, videos, quizzes, role playings, etc. Three, use the results of your compliance training to improve areas of your business. And finally, use third-party tools to ensure the most up-to-date compliance training. If you use these three or these four different strategies, you will come up with training that's sticky. Tom? Jay, next up, we have an article about using data analytics, and it's not uh, precisely in the compliance space, but it raised some great points. I'm going to take a little bit of time to uh, to go through it. It involves uh, litigation against Providence Health on an FC, FCA claim by Integra Mad Analytics. And what Integra Mad Analytics did is through a uh, Freedom of Information Act, got information about uh, Providence Health submissions of um, payments or invoices, rather, for Medicare claims. And they were, in large part, coded for more lucrative secondary diagnosis than the particular uh, issue that many of the patients had. And what uh, Integra Analytics said was, this was an unusual uh, situation or an anomaly, and that, therefore, Providence Health was fraudulently coding for Medicare reimbursement, um, which is how you use data analytics. You look for anomalies. Now, this was uh, not an internal investigation. This was not a root cause analysis. It was an FCPA lawsuit, excuse me, FCA lawsuit. And um, the court threw it out. And the court threw it out because they said simply alleging an anomaly is not... uh, 
proof that or uh, substantive uh, enough substantive proof to survive a motion to dismiss prima facie evidence being the legal term that Providence Health engaged in uh, fraud, Medicare fraud. There could be a variety of explanations. And at the pleading stage, Providence Health was not required to factually demonstrate or put forward evidence. It's the plaintiff's burden of proof. And if they can't plead a cognizable cause of action, uh, the case gets thrown out. So you might want to disagree with that. Nevertheless, I think it's correct from a procedural aspect. But, Jay, the thing that struck me was using how this company used uh, integrated analytics, used data analysis to uh, determine an anomaly. And that's exactly what a compliance professional should be doing. You should look at your gifts, travel, and entertainment. You should look at your sales. You should look at your marketing expense. You should look at your charitable donations to see if there are any anomalies. Do you have spikes in certain countries? Uh, that's how you can use data analytics in the compliance uh, realm. And, of course, after last year's uh, update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, specifying that uh, compliance officers had to have access to their own company's data and you had to use that data. I thought it was a particularly appropriate uh, discussion in this case. So a really great discussion of how data analytics can be used. It fell short because of the procedural requirements in a federal district court lawsuit for False Claims Act. Nevertheless, it pointed out how you can use data analytics, more importantly, why you can use data analytics. But understand, data analytics are not your be-all, end-all. There's always going to be the human element to interpret them, and moreover, to investigate if anomalies arise. So a really good uh, lesson. Uh, also, it came from Jessica Ellsworth. So uh, uh, shout out to Jessica for uh, the article. And uh, what do we have for our last article um, this week's uh, edition, Jay? Thanks, Tom. Uh, last but not least, we are going to check in with the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. We've got an article from a group of attorneys at Davis Polk Wardell. Uh, the authors are Matthew Bacall, Robert Cohen, Joseph Hall, Greg Andres, Angela Burgess, and Martine Bimom. And we took we take a look at internally communicating about cybersecurity issues. The Securities and Exchange Commission announced a settled enforcement action on June 15th against the company for violating the requirement that public companies have controls and procedures to ensure that they make required disclosures in SEC filings. Here's the facts. According to the SEC order, a cybersecurity journalist informed the company of a vulnerability and a proprietary application that the company used to store and share document images. The vulnerability exposed more than 800 million documents that contained sensitive PI personal information. The company issued a statement for the journalist's report the same day and filed a Form 8K four days later. The SEC alleged that the senior executives responsible for filing the 8K were not aware that personal that company personnel had identified this very vulnerability months before or that the issue was not remediated as a company policy required. Unaware of that history, despite attending meetings with the informed personnel, the senior executives did not evaluate whether to disclose the prior detection or the failed remediation. As a result, the SEC concluded that the company violated disclosure control rules, 
which require controls and procedures designed to ensure that information required to be disclosed by the issuer and the reports that it files or submits is recorded, processed, summarized, and reported within the time periods specified by SEC rules. Without omitting or denying the findings, the company agreed to pay a penalty of approximately $500,000. So here's four key takeaways. Although the SEC has filed a few cases involving cybersecurity-related disclosures, this case underlines the SEC willingness to bring enforcement actions to back up its recent guidance on this topic. Public companies may want to revisit the SEC's 2018 guidance that the SEC experts disclose, excuse me, expects disclosure controls to address cybersecurity risk and incidents. Second, when designing and evaluating disclosure controls and procedures, companies should consider whether such controls and procedures will appropriately record, process, summarize, and report the information related to cybersecurity risks. Three, the case is noteworthy for the SEC's decision to find a violation of the disclosure control rules, which have been the subject of limited government enforcement actions. This may signal the increasing enforcement focus on internal controls requirements, even in the absence of a disclosure violation or actual harm. And finally, cybersecurity is now a material risk for many companies, but risk profiles vary by industry and company. Finding the right balance of cybersecurity updates without overwhelming senior management with too much information is an increasingly important governance challenge. With the growing frequency of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and incidents, companies can expect increased government scrutiny after the disclosure of cybersecurity issues. This includes the SEC, which we expect will continue to bring enforcement action in this area. Tom, what about podcasts and events? So, Jay, we had uh, it's a new week, so we have a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, I welcome Marianne Fairmouth, who uh, has a podcast called Career Can Do. Marianne is a recruiter, but she is a recruiter for employees. She's an employee advocate, and in her podcast, she talks about all facets of the hiring process. In episode one, she uh, interviews Jessica Levine and talks about uh, Jessica has a restaurant. They talk about what they look like. So uh, check out uh, Career Can Do, Marianne Fairmouth, a great new addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. I had a week-long celebration on greetings and felicitations where I was joined by my colleague Ben Lockwin, and we looked at some of the science behind Star Trek, the original series. So we had Mirror Mirror and Transporters, where no man has gone before in phasers, naked time in warp drive, tomorrow is yesterday, black holes, white holes, and wormholes, and in Journey to Babel, the uh, medicine of TOS. Uh, as uh, you know, Jay, this month on The Compliance Life, I visit with Asha Palmer, CECO at Conversant, and this week we put up um, what happens when your husband calls and says, what do you think about Abu Dhabi? Well, for uh, Asha, it really led to her um, embracing compliance and really developing her passion. Uh, I was, uh, just like uh, your colleague, Vindiciani turned the tables on me, Jay. Uh, the brothers Gallo turned the tables on me, and Jason Mefford did as well, interviewing me. The brothers Gallo interviewed me for their podcast, The Ethics Experts, on uh, also on the Compliance Podcast Network, and Jason interviewed me for Jamming with Jason, 
uh, his podcast also on the Compliance Podcast Network. So it's great to uh, kind of move back to uh, the other side of the mic and be interviewed a couple times. We also had a new Integrity Through Compliance podcast drop. You want to tell us about that? Sure. On uh, episode 13 of Affiliated Monitors Integrity Through Compliance podcast, my colleague Dion Lomax uh, interviewed Mince Levin's Joseph Miller, and they took a deep dive into consent degree enforcement at the FTC and the DOJ. Uh, this is available not only on the Affiliated Monitors website, but believe it or not, it's on the Compliance Podcast Network, too. And Tom, I think that tees you up to talk about trekking through compliance this week. What did you, what did you look at? So, Jay, we had uh, a fair number of uh, our standard uh, podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network around uh, trekking through compliance. So uh, let me see if I can uh, pull up some of the uh, pods that we had uh, this week. Uh, we're working through the entire um, oeuvre of the original series. We took a look at the uh, games, uh, Gamesters of Triskillian, I, I caution you, it has an off-the-camera rape scene that is, is pretty gut-wrenching uh, in this episode. Uh, there was actually three rape scenes in the original uh, series. I'm not sure you could do that today, but nevertheless, uh, something to, to look out for. I certainly learned a lot. My personal favorite, Jay, and Minnie's as well, The Trouble with Tribbles, one of the great uh, uh, comedy episodes and uh, certainly beloved in the Star Trek community. Uh, we also had Wolf of the Fold featuring Mr. Scott, where he is accused of a series of murders. And then we had um, uh, Obsession, where Captain Kirk really, uh, as the title suggests, obsess, obsesses over uh, one uh thing that he had done wrong earlier in his career. And finally, the deadly years where uh, the uh, executive staff or the what I would call the Hill executive leadership team, but the senior staff uh, all ages uh, uh, literally uh, by the hour. And so uh, we had some interesting uh, commentary on that, Jay. And, um, you know, I'm having a ton of fun and we're learning uh, compliance lessons, leadership lessons. If you're a Star Trek fan at all, check out one or more of the episodes of Trekking Through Compliance. Well, Tom, uh, the Compliance Handbook, second edition, has been released. Uh, any updates? Uh, how's the book doing? Uh, book is doing well. Uh, we had an event this week with uh, hosted by Conversant and Stone Turn, where uh, we talked about and focused on third parties. And we went through the five-part uh, third-party risk management um, lifecycle that I've developed over the years. So we got to talk about that. Stone Turn, uh, Valerie Charles, our, co our colleague, joined us from Stone Turn to talk about really thinking about third parties, Jay, in the context I had not really considered, which is risk management to continuous monitoring to continuous improvement. Asha Palmer talked about the new conversant third-party risk management platform. So it's really a unified uh, approach and overlaid with the five-step process that I've developed. Uh, check it out on uh, Conversant. Uh, all of us, Stone Turn, myself, and Conversant are going to be reposting it. Uh, there's some special giveaways. Conversant has developed a third-party risk management checklist. Um, not the bad kind of checklist, but the one that helps you understand where uh, there might be any gaps in your program. Uh, the five-part lifecycle management 
of third-party risk uh, also is going to be available uh, as well. So uh, check those out. Uh, they're great resources uh, going forward. So you want to take us home, Jay? Sure. On behalf of uh, Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, who can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, I can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. We both would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 261 for the week ending July 16th, 2021, the live from Portland edition. We appreciate you spending some of your week with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at the week that was in FCPA. Have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.